0: people can talk to talk and people do it very well but life is going to hit you with a certain level of opposition life is going to hit you with a certain level of adversity and life is going to say to you you said you wanted it now let's see how bad you really want
1: it hello humans welcome to the n-word the manx Sports podcast brought to you by martin that's me i'm matt uh- that's him welcome back matthew Good, okay, thank you, and yourself. Good, 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 good. Excited. Uh, we're joined by our guests who are bringing our studio in a few moments' time. Uh, first of all, we just want to give a quick uh, thank you to our sponsor, billboards.im. They do exactly what it says on the tin, which is billboard advertisement, digital advertising. You'll have seen it around the Isle of Man. Uh, it's the future of advertising, so give the guys a shout and uh, get your brand out there with those guys. And they're obviously uh, helping us immensely with our, our project as well. So thanks, guys. So in a moment we're going to be joined by our guest, uh, but before before I do that, I just want to chat, Matt. Just on the intro, came in there. You've heard a, a voice as we normally do. Hmm. Uh, you're probably not familiar with it. A gentleman called Inky Johnson. Come across that name?
2: Can't say I have no. no.
1: So so Inky was a college uh, American football player and was about ten games away from making it pro in the NFL. Right. Uh, come through a hard life, uh, and his whole focus in his career had been about. Uh, making it, and eventually, obviously, to support his family, etc. Uh, ten games away from making a career of it, he had uh, he went into a tackle, uh, badly damaged his arm, which ended up being limp, uh, and really ended his career before it even started, and his dream of uh, supporting his family. He you can find him on YouTube oh. if, you, if you Google it, if you Google yeah. him you find him on YouTube. Uh, but, but what's interesting about his he's a motivational speaker now. What, what you, what's really interesting when I listened to him, he reminded me. Uh, his, his sort of tagline, in it always when he's when he's on stage talking about uh, the incident. He talks about his, his arm, which he has as an bandage and he talks about his arm being a badge mm. of honour. So he uses that as motivation for his uh, for what he does day to day in his life, and, and it's it's that really that badge of honour, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which really rolled me into a, uh, our guest today, who is uh, just joined us in the studio is Sam Brand. So Sa- Sam. Uh, is for those locals, I'm sure have heard of him. Is a pro cyclist and uh, has type one diabetes. Uh, rides for a team, and very much the team is about diabetes awareness, and really rolls into that, wearing that uh, badge of honour, really, to to talk about that subject and 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 use that to to help people with that situation. So thanks for joining us today, Sam. Thank no, you, thank you, thank you for having me, guys. No, no problem at all so if you don't mind we'll just plough straight into it so yeah of course. talk a bit about your background uh, well first of all the always the first question is are you a come over are you manx are you manx manx <laughs> or you manx is the hills
3: uh I, i'm manx um both my um parents are manx okay. Um then when it goes to my grandparents uh my grandma Mars are both Manx but oh, you know, right. so that's Manx yeah, oh, I mean, I'll, yeah, I'll give yeah. it yeah. yeah. <laughs> they will we'll accept you <laughs> we'll I'm glad and wherever I go I'm always Manx yeah, yeah. 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 well that's
1: something I do see a lot. obviously we see a lot of, out when you're out riding uh, and that, that the, the little Manx flag is always part of that mm. yeah it's yeah. another badge of honour yeah. Mm. yeah yeah, <laughs> very good very good uh, so let's talk about the early days getting into sport Where 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 do you recall your first sort of interaction with sport and on the Isle of Man?
3: Oh God, when I, was, when I was a kid, you know, it was just running around the, like it, at school, you know, doing yeah. everything, but I mean, back to just playing football at school, but I mean, Matt can probably recall, I mean, my brother is also a Matthew and yeah. Matthew's brother is a Sam and we grew up at the same time, you know, we're the same age, so Matt's the same age as my brother and Sam's the same age as me and we did a lot of triathlons together, a lot of cycling, yeah. so um, growing up, um, I was, I did everything, I mean, I was I was pretty talented I mean I was always at the top end you know but I mean how top end can you say it at that age I mean it was just having fun yeah. uh earliest memories are really sort of those events we used to do like mm. Tuesday nights down the NSC uh, those sort of things which football school sports those those sort of stuff
1: did you uh at that age were your parents uh, obviously supportive of doing sport but not pushy they're just whatever you fancy doing at the time whether it's be football netball whatever <laughs> <if you're>, uh...
3: <laughs> oh yeah it was just supportive you know they 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 want you to do what you want to do and it was kind of never really pushy it was like it had to be from me and right. i think that's as it always has been and it's always still now um if you don't want to do it you won't do it and i always wanted to and my dad growing up he was into his cycling he's organized cyclists in the alman for i don't know 20 years probably a bit longer yeah. um it's been involved in cycling so Uh, He was also an age group triathlete uh, for Great Britain, so uh, that's kind of where I got into triathlon side of stuff and and how uh, into those endurance side of sports.
1: What age did you start doing triathlon?
3: I think it was probably between the age of, I don't know, eight and 14 almost, Mm -hmm. about about that age, and they would just do a couple of junior ones maybe once, twice a year down around the NSC. It was, yeah, good fun.
1: And obviously that, I know you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of 10 yes correct Uh, obviously that's a big part of the overall story yeah at that age at 10 how how did that affect that support that sport side of things
3: honestly i don't really remember a moment before that like taking sport seriously but i mean there was definitely an overlap where i'd done some sport before and then, but I wanted to continue afterwards and I always found that I'd never really had a negative story. You hear a lot of negative stories about diagnosis of type one diabetes and, and it, it's a misconception really. And that's part of what we do as a team is to try and change those perceptions. Um, but I don't really remember a time where anyone said I couldn't do something. Mm-hmm. And even if they did, I would that my goal would be, that would be my burning desire to prove them that I can. Mm-hmm. And that's probably, um, I was always given support and I remember after I'd gone out of the junior level or the young triathlon, the maybe eight, nine, ten years old, 11, uh, when I got up to the next level, and I started competing in my first senior one at maybe 16, I still wasn't training for the sport, Mm. but um, my diabetes care care team from the Isle of Man, uh, they they helped support me and we worked out a plan to get me to that level and to use it. So it was never, why can't we do it? I mean, in, in society now, it's so easy to say I can't and, and, to say no and be negative it's almost a hard wire you know so they were almost like well what do we need to do and then we worked out a solution a plan and and we went from there and uh pretty successful my first and first race and worked out well
2: and Mm -hmm. for those who who may not know um so being diagnosed diagnosed with that how did that how does that change your day-to-day life how does how does that impact your exercise routine in that sense
3: okay so i mean don't impe- teach people to smoke. Yeah, to yeah. I, don't and, know uh, I don't know. So, so in, in, terms to, in terms that's of, that's so. of diabetes, type one diabetes is autoimmune. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of misconceptions that uh, it's self inflicted. Uh, but type one is autoimmune. So my body destroys uh, my insulin basically. So my body does no longer produces insulin. I have to manually um, inject my insulin. Uh, on a daily basis, I mean, that, that that's a, a lot of injections or, or through pump, but my, my, my regime uses multiple daily injections. Um, I've got a continuous glucose monitor, a Dexcom, which reads live glucose data. Mm-hmm. So I basically wake up in the morning and make a decision based on what's happened the night before, the oh, day wow. before, uh, what's happened through the night. I make a decision on what ride I've got then. I mean, this is a lot further than it was 18 years ago when I was diagnosed. Um, but now it's a daily basis. I make decisions based on what I see. So it, it it's fine tuning and and for me when I was diagnosed, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It gave me a mission, and maybe it took a while to realize that. But um, it gave me something to chase, something to show, something to uh, you know. I mean, I always say it, but it's change your little part of the world. I mean, so uh, my management daily is making decisions based on what I eat what training I've got what's to come the next day what I've done the day before so there is a lot of influence and factors in it it's trying to make sure you make the right decision but um, it's just one of those things that I kind of get used to I probably don't it sounds a lot for someone else but because I've done it for so long Mm. it just kind of becomes second nature and yeah part of like it's like having a shower, you know. It just it just happens now. I mean, I I have to take <laughs> taking these factors and 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 just make a decision based on what 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 I can see. And I mean, I've got as many tools as possible to to look at what's gonna happen and how it happens. But um,
1: so so that's yeah. that when you're ten, 10, eleven. is yes. that when you do. You have, do you initially go to injecting? Is that the first step? Yeah, so you,
3: yeah, usually that's the the, fir, the first sort of way you're to deal with it, to, 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 to manage it. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. so they usually, in the, in the UK, they don't let you leave the hospital until you've learned to inject yourself. Mm-hmm. So you could be in hospital a long time, depending on uh, how long it takes you. Dad's very scared of needles, so... <laughs> um, a lot of it was put on my parents at 10 i can't yeah, really yeah, yeah. do a lot myself i mean if i was diagnosed now you infl- influence your own diet and everything so you kind of make those decisions yourself at that age my parents had to make a lot more decisions for themselves and for me and and how we go forward with it but um they never showed it as anything that was a negative they took a lot on board that day and and i'm so grateful for their support i mean uh they've always supported me through sport and through this and and They've they've got me to where I am now, and it's a professional cyclist. So it's not not being too bad. Yeah.
1: So then, then between twelve and twelve and fifteen, you're doing a lot of tries. Yeah. Learning how to manage the diabetes as part of that process.
3: Yeah, I mean, going through school was probably the most difficult time because it, I was diagnosed in. Uh, year six so it was a world diabetes day actually so that's how it was in the news I saw yeah. parents saw like Steve Redgrave on tv and uh, that's yeah. put two and two together and I mean the standard uh, symptoms are like increased thirst weight loss and I was showing the exact signs you know so um, going through secondary school I had to learn pretty quickly on the not only had sort of my school change, but a lot of my day-to-day life had changed going from primary school to secondary school so then uh, I just kind of took it on board I mean uh, there's no hiding away from it you have to deal with it it's a situation that okay it's not always easy but it's manageable so um, going through school is not I wouldn't say difficult but you go through a lot as a growing up you know going through teenage years and then getting through that I mean I I, it was probably the easiest thing to manage when you're at that age you know when you're going through everything you want to do everything your friends are doing so I had to make it work you know I had to make mm. it happen if I wanted to continue doing what I wanted to do but honestly I don't really remember it being anything more than just what I had to do I don't yeah, I don't I, it's never been something that I have to deal with it's something that will have to deal with what I want to do and then I take it along with me and it's just there it's not something that is in charge I'm in charge and it'll just have to follow me and that's kind of the way I've seen it and that, that really has helped me.
1: And at school and would, would other you know would, would you get picked on for would they be looking at you injecting and going well, you know you're different
3: i mean there was a couple of times like a scenario in school where um i was in in the canteen and then i had taken injection because i was eating so i took an injection and the the deputy head came over to me and said uh you can't do that in here because people don't don't like mm-hmm. it and i go well if i didn't do it i'd be very sick very quickly and you'd have to then sort a, a, a bigger issue out you know and and I, I wasn't disrespectful, but I know what I have to do, and the circumstance, and like the, the consequences of not doing it yeah. would be a lot harder than some other child not liking it, you know, if you don't like it, you have to look away, or yeah. I'll never do it in public show, I don't want to do it to put people off, but I mean, it's just something I have to do to stay alive, so I'm gonna do it, and and then from really that day, that must have been maybe when I was 12, 13, um, It never really became more than that. I mean, even if someone tried to bully me, I would just just brush it off. I mean, it's just something I have to do. Uh, There might have been a few snide remarks, but um, that's not my problem. I always look at it like um, I can only control what I do and what I want to do, and if someone's got a problem, then it's either jealousy or it's either their sort of misunderstanding, and then that's my time to sort of educate them or or show them that it's not a problem and this is why I do it. And So it was pretty straightforward I mean um, I don't if there was any bullying it's not something that's ever affected me or yeah, something yeah. that I wouldn't be able to
1: handle so no yeah. yeah, reason I ask obviously kids often can be we've all gone through that and we can be ruthless for, yeah, I think, for I no think reason when someone's it's straight, looks different or is different or doing something different yeah of course reason, I think so.
3: I think there was a little bit of that but I mean I guess it's competitive nature and you guys will know I mean as soon as like someone starts creeping in on that on you and trying to like then you then start to get your back up doing this fight or flight kind of thing I'm not looking for a fight you know but uh, mm. it's kind of just one of those things where I've just got to take it on the chin and that's not my problem it's just something that I just happened but I don't remember any massive yeah, yeah. conflicts or anything that anyone would say anything I didn't think they really understood and I just did it myself you know
1: there's many other at that age many other people that you knew with type 1 so
3: when I was diagnosed in primary school there was no one else uh, when I went to secondary school, there was no one else, and then maybe two or three years into secondary school, there was another girl in my year who was diagnosed. But beyond that, there was no one else at secondary school at that point. No, not, mm-hmm. that, not that I remember. But I now now hear of a lot more cases now. A friend, uh, Graham Hatcher's son, Brody. Yeah. Uh, he's one of three in his class. So I mean, like it's a it's a bigger. Um, obviously, it's more and more cases developing, and it's just the way that things go. But uh,
1: is there a? You mentioned at the beginning there i butcher it, it's a type, you mentioned the, uh, the let's call it, the t- type, it's a new, new uh... what do <laughs> it mean? Yeah, that's exactly the word, yeah. it took the words right out of my <laughs> yeah. mouth. Uh, is, the, is there an increase, the increase of them then, or because it's more seen more, is there a an, an external factor too, or it's just like is just statistically, yeah, that's just yeah, the, the way life sort of is? Yeah. I think it's
3: just statistics, I mean with type 2 diabetes, there's a lot more knowledge now, I mean, with type one diabetes from sort of if you hadn't had it diagnosed you'd know pretty quickly. Yeah. I mean, for the, from probably having the symptoms to, to being to a point where you would need to be in hospital would be a very short time. I'm not, no doctor, so uh <laughs> but it would be probably a month yeah. sort of thing if at most, you know, because your body's no longer producing insulin. Whereas yeah. if you're type two, which is a it's a totally different condition, it's it's more maybe lifestyle or that sort of thing you would you would it would take a lot longer to maybe notice that or you might not notice it or it might never be diagnosed mm-hmm. but um the there is a lot more information about diabetes type one and two out there now, so the more that goes out there, the more that it becomes apparent that that might be what you yeah. have got so if you type two, you might never know, but then now there's more and more cases developing because there's more awareness of it, mm-hmm. whereas type one you would know. Pretty much straight away, so it's kind of like it doesn't really it it's, it wouldn't wouldn't go undiagnosed. Um, Thinking Google for a, for a very long time. Yeah, no, It's, no, it's, it's no. so it's. Uh, I just think it's just one of those things where, as we progress as a human race, you know, more and more are going to develop, and that's just how yeah. it happens. I think I don't know if there's any environmental factors, mm-hmm. uh, the genetics. They don't really know. There's not really a. Uh, an answer yet yeah. but they're working on it i mean i've since had uh, my cousin diagnosed so it could be something genetic so it could just be freak coincidence you know mm-hmm. you never yeah. know but it's just one of those cars that you dealt
1: yeah okay and uh so it's quite interesting there you mentioned obviously about it maybe then forming part of your drive up to the even up to well up to this point yeah
3: i mean i think again the competitive side i've used it as a a benefit. I mean, it took me a while to realize that it could be something that you can work with. But it has given me that reason to, to fight. And you see people and you see horror stories. And it's given me that desire to, to say, okay, let's use it. And if you use it as a cycling example, if you put me in a, another cyclist on a bike, we'd both run out of energy at some point. So um, it gives me a tool to allow my body to know what's happening. So I, I feel that I'm very... Much in tune with what my body's doing, how my blood sugars are going, so what's happening in my body. Yeah. Whereas you get a lot of people, maybe not sportsman specific, but a lot of people who aren't finally in tune with their body, and I feel that that's just a tool to help me in professional cycling. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So to go back then, you you obviously, I, and I, I remember you uh, in the triath, vag- vaguely with my poor memory, in the triathlon scene. Uh, so you comp- competed at a, a good level at the triathlon scene.
3: Yeah, so I mean, to go back to the start, I mean, I, I was up until 18, 19, I was playing Peel first team goalkeeper. I played for the Alaman senior football. Um, I was really enjoying my football, but I was a goalkeeper and I was running like a, a 32 minute 10k. So I was like the fittest outfield player, but um, I kind of just never really specialised, did what I wanted to do. And then um, I went to university uh, at 20 uh, and I decided that. I wanted to continue that triathlon. I was kind of a bit out of touch with football and Mm. it's not really where I wanted to go. And I I quite like that idea of testing my endurance and getting that bit further. So now I went to university in 2011, and then 20, if I remember, so I started triathlon in 2012. And then within 12 months, I was representing Great Britain. my first world championships age mm-hmm. group level um, in London. Mm-hmm. So I raced in Hyde Park in, in London the following year, raced European championships age group uh, in Geneva, and then it kind of barreled from there. And so within sh- sh- such a short space of time, I was showing that I could build a, an endurance engine. Obviously it had results from running before. I was junior Allemann cross country champion uh, twice. I was uh, Allemann schools cross country champion twice in a row. Uh, so I had an engine I just hadn't really had anywhere to take it mm-hmm. and then so I went to university studying my degree in quantity surveying which is uh, <laughs> uh, taking a turn from what I do now but uh, it then gave me this reason like I I to pursue that and then I got to the end of my degree and I was kind of like 2015 the next Commonwealth Games is what 2018 maybe I could I could push onto that but then I got to a, a crossroads really and that's where the cycling journey kind of kind of kicks off from there but uh i i'd I'd raced i mean for i did two world championships age group level in uh london as i say uh canada and Mm -hmm. then a european championships in geneva so
1: are they olympic distance so uh
3: the london was sprint i Mm -hmm. think i raced olympic at the other two so how how does
2: and how did those come about were you racing for your University at that time, so, or is it just like local ones in London? Yeah, kind of it's, kind of like, enter and...
3: yeah it's kind of like a, a procedure. It's uh, almost, there's three qualifying races, say, and you have to go to one of those races and then finish in top five or, or whatnot. It's, it's a bit open for interpretation, and how they select is is a bit different each race. But um, I just kind of went through into my university club, made a lot of good friends in the club, and they kind of showed me where to go, and that's how I... I when I started I didn't really know that that was a thing I just wanted to have a routine at university mm-hmm. I mean I, I was all for a, a few parties but you know uh, I as I said I took two years out before I went to university I'd done that a bit with the football side of stuff so I was kind of more looking for something to as an outlet so uh, I was decided that triathlon club was going to be the way mm-hmm. to go and then um, qualified for these races pretty sharp which kind of then realized that maybe this is where my sport is or that that side of stuff is where i'm going to excel a bit more and really just an outlet from from the work from the university and and that side of stuff so um i decided to take that leap and and, and go from there
1: was anyone training you at that stage or self
3: well we had a university coach but yeah. um his name's alan copeland still close to him now he's he, he's a very good athlete himself um mm. but uh, apart from that now i was kind of just going to the local running club gateshead harriers so mm. um I was running with very talented people, uh, swimming with talented people, and cycling. But at that point, cycling was probably only two hours a week. You know, three hours a week. I wasn't riding a lot. It was um, not even my favorite. You know, I mean, I love going for a bike ride. But I was a, a runner. That was where my passion okay. was. Really, I was going to ask have you.
1: Have, sorry, Matt, Of yeah. the three, the running was. Do you feel that was your main strength?
3: Yeah, definitely. Stage? I was, I was. I was a sinker in the pool. So I would definitely <laughs> not be a swimmer ever uh on the bike I enjoyed it but it was always more like to build endurance you know it'd just be a, a nice easy ride I didn't really have anything bike specific but I really did enjoy it and I was pretty good but I, I'd never ridden a race it was not something right. that I'd really thought about I loved a good time trial you know but uh like your dad. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah so it was kind of just like thought I'd give a uh the time trials I did a few tens at that point but uh Again, I'd done a few 10s growing up, you know. I'd done if going back even before I went to university. I'd done a few 10s, but then I got called into the Alman senior squad for football. And then mm. it was on a Wednesday night, so I had to make a decision about yeah. where I go. And I chose football at that point. So um, I was doing a few bite stuff that was more dad's influence. And I enjoyed it, but I wasn't a world-beater, you know. I wasn't wasn't bad. I was doing some decent times, but... It still hadn't quite piqued my interest.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So the the footballing then was the goalkeeping, is that again could you be out play outfield or was it all just keeping your your two left feet or you,
3: Uh I wouldn't mm-hmm. say I was bad, but yeah. I mean I'd always been a goalkeeper from, yeah. from a kid and I used to love that, you know, that that shot stopping, and the throwing yourself around maybe a bit like, you know, I don't know, just that just that fun enjoyment of getting that dirty, you know, just throwing myself about uh, being the hero a little bit, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. But uh yeah, I just used to love it and I kind of probably wasn't the best as a kid, that's why I got put in gold, maybe. Oh, yeah. It's open to debate. <laughs> uh, uh yeah, so I kind of progressed from there really. It was kinda of like you're a goalkeeper, okay I'm a goalkeeper, so mm. that's kinda of how it, how it developed and Played for Peel, did you? Played for Peel, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, I, I played junior at St John's, then moved mm-hmm. to Peel and played mm-hmm. senior football at Peel, yeah. Headhunted
1: to Peel as well. Yeah, headhunted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: after the season before, I lost 12 nil to Peel. So, oh, right. uh, <laughs> <still> <laughs> yeah, they need, that, they need that goalkeeper. But, yeah, it was all right. Not so bad.
2: So, yeah, I kind of just want to go on that point there. Um, you've been playing goalkeeper way. You're not really moving around a lot. No, no disrespect um and you can monitor it's i guess easier to monitor your levels then you go all the way to the polar opposite side where you're now exercising and working for a lot longer period of time so how easy is that to monitor your level because presumably when you're doing your triflons it you, you can't just put a needle in or easier to monitor so i was just wondering how that kind of how, how you go about on that really yeah
3: I mean like football's like 45 minute half you know I mean you can test before test in the middle and test it again at the end, at the end and, and like you say it's pretty docile for want of a better word You I mean not doing much I mean even on the exciting games I wasn't doing a lot um, but um, it's just with triathlon uh, and, and I like to take you to this story uh, my last triathlon was in uh, in Bala in um, Wales in 2015 September um, I was I uh, was I, I met a guy and I, I was racing with the team over noticed brand across my chest and and um at this point um it was kind of like I, I i was coming towards the end of, of what was my triathlon career and um a guy asked me like oh, i'm type one as well how do you how do you cope in a race and i go well i've done all this like sort of i've built up this whole vast amount of experience basically and um i'm if i test before i know where i'm at in the middle doesn't really matter what's happening as long as i fuel my um sugars are going to be in the ballpark because i'm exercising um i've got my morning regime sorted everything's good i've tested throughout the morning i know where where my sugars are going what's happening as long as i fuel in the middle of the in the middle of the bike then i should end up in in the right ballpark at the end and and for me wanting to win is more important and wanting to win is, is just my desire you know it's my competitiveness mm-hmm. as, you, as you can all appreciate but um i knew i would be in the right area at the end and, and in that race especially i was and i mean i'd come off the back of that uh, i'd qualified again for the world's um i'd race it was sub two hours i mean it's it's a fast mm-hmm. a fast race and i'd run a 33 flat 10k so i mean i was i was shifting and i was in the right area and you kind of this guy was like, uh, well, and he then told me his regime. And I said, that's perfect. That's what you have to do to monitor your diabetes. And obviously he had a lot shorter time than I'd had it. But he was not at the point where I was at where I'd built up all this information. I said, listen, you just need to, to work on what's good for you, where mm. your influences are and how you how you need to manage yours. And, and I think he took a lot, a lot out of that. And it was, for me nice to hear someone else's side you know it's not often you meet it's another type one who's massively into sport um and also going back to the original question um I kind of always did a bit more longer distance so whether my body was mm. already ready you know I don't I don't know if that's a thing but it sounds like a thing you know so mm. uh like when I was a goalkeeper I was also a cross-country runner you know I was doing both and and I guess I'd always done a bit of all that so maybe my body was in a way, already ready for that scenario, yeah. but I mean, it did have to take. There was a lot of, not wrongs because I don't like to define it as getting something wrong because it's not wrong. It's just it's just learning. It's just learning yeah. yeah. So it's, so I like. There's a lot of situations that developed to get me to the situation where, I'd been in that scenario before, so I could I could manage that situation.
1: Yeah, I think uh, that I think because you're obviously monitoring it, like you say, such a such and you're very conscious about it all the time and in tune with your body yeah. really that. Uh, it does make that process a lot easier yeah yeah in inverted commas because uh, i'd imagine and whether you come across many people but uh, i imagine some people don't they just take their insulin I, I could be wrong but just take they need it and they take it and they, they're not perhaps so in tuned but especially if they're not athletes that's just day-to-day life and they just they just you know my level's getting low i, I take it rather than uh, perhaps managing it a little more, and again, that's not a criticism of people. I just wonder that. that I imagine along yeah, I mean, so, with anything, yeah. course, any diseases or anything.
3: Well, like with 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 diabetes, it's so so so. Just a, a quick lesson. I mean, I'm again, I'm not a doctor, but so when you eat, you take insulin because insulin allows the sugar to enter the bloodstream and that sort okay. of stuff. So when you're high, is insulin. So you take your insulin to bring your sugar level down, and okay. then when you go low, you take sugar to increase it. So it's mm-hmm. a fine balancing act, but. um there's people who aren't professional sportsmen the people who aren't sportsmen there's people who are literally going to work and, and doing their thing and that and that's completely cool you know I'm, I'm all for anything but I mean for me diabetes and sport is going hand in hand and I mean for me to be at the top level finely tuned it's just the same as having my diabetes finely tuned you know it's kind of one and one yeah. but um some people don't want to be sportsmen that's completely cool um You do what you need to do and and you build your regime based on what you do. So a regime could be totally different based on going to the office all the time. And Unfortunately, professional cycling is going to have to come to an end at some point, hopefully not for a a good few years yet. But at that point, then I'll have to manage diabetes again in a different way based on what is going to happen from that point forward. So it is a forever learning curve. Like You're just going to develop as your life develops Mm. and it's just things that change.
1: Do you know when you, when it's out of sync, can you, do you think you can sense it earlier than people that maybe aren't so in tune, you're thinking, I need, I need to look at this now? Or, yeah, or maybe, is it I app? mean, yeah. I believe a lot of it's now controlled yeah, within Yeah, so I mean,
3: app. I have an app with the live data on, but yeah. I, do, yeah. I do get a lot of feeling, you know, so yeah, I mean, yeah, there's yeah. hyper-awareness, so like, you almost feel it coming on like a cloud, you know what I mean? Okay. Like, a lot of people can see it from the outside, so I might like lose blood in my face you know my mm. body pale up or or you might Oh that's it's not like man's tan no no, no 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 that's just okay. the, ta- the cycling helmet you know <laughs> yeah. uh, but like I, it would be noticeable and I would notice probably before anyone that my sugars were going lower that are high and that's where you in before the continuous monitors you, you're, you're checking because you're not feeling too good and then you check and then you know where you are with this answer with this number I know where I'm at and mm. then I can make a, 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 a informed decision based on where the numbers are so like you say the app is Amazing, because you you can see where you're at live. You have to stop and do anything else to check or whatnot. But I mean, yeah, it's just
2: something I live with now. And just question on the app. Um, yeah. What's that? How's that communicating? with You know, as in like yeah, yeah. you you look at it, it, gives you number. But what's what's going on? Like so. As
3: in so I wear a sensor on my arm. Right, um, yeah. It it then it sits under the skin, reads uh, pulses. Tells, uh, Hmm. converts it, and sends it via Bluetooth to to my phone, and just uh, (laughs) keeps me up to date. It's uh, (laughs) it's the best piece of equipment I've got. How does that work on the bike? So um, we have receivers, so we have receivers just stick in your jersey, you know, oh, it's right. like when you pick out a bar or whatnot, you just pick out your oh, okay. receiver and check your, check your number, and oh, in, in a race we'd use the number over the phone, but in day-to-day life it's easier to carry a
1: phone than yeah, carry a phone yeah, and yeah. receiver, so... Um, does it get, does it warn, will it warn you then as well? If yeah, you know, so
3: I'm with the Dexcom to... it, it will give you an alarm, so if, if you go low in your sleep it'll set mm. it up, and also it, it's really great because I, I do an initiative on the Isle of Man with, with all the parents, who I've started this campaign to allow uh, access to to children with type yeah. 1 diabetes to, to monitors it's called Monitors for kids okay. uh, the idea is to raise 200 grand over 2 years to to allow all under 16s uh, to have access to to this equipment because it's not provided by the NHS so um, I've done a few things with the parents and we've done a couple of balls sold a few jerseys you know to try and to try and show that this it's like a safeguard you know you've got parents who like my parents were, obviously the technology wasn't available, but there's there's parents who who are worried that their child might go low or something might happen and with with the DEXCOM, uh, it, it pushes through the data so it will alert you if you go mm-hmm. low. This can be then held on like a, a teacher's iPad, you know, in classes sometimes they have it now. It can also be shared to your parents at home. So if you're going low and you're out and about, then your parents will know. So then they can make a, a step or an evaluation based on that. But if you're at school, then the teachers are alert, so mm-hmm. it, it kind of keeps everyone in the loop. If you're unable to sort yourself out, you know if yeah. something's gone too far. But especially for me, the most important is that like at night, I can I can see what what's happening and it'll wake me up if, if it
1: needs to. Right. Okay. Wow. Well. So th- that that project going on on the island. Talk a bit about that.
3: Yeah. So, so. Uh, it's called um, monitors for Kids, as I say. Yeah. Um, we've done. 2 years now it's coming to the end of the second year which is is the idea is to have uh, 200,000 uh, raised over the two years right. uh, to allow all under 16s i believe uh, to have access to this equipment mm. uh, and then hopefully the we're going to lobby the government at the end of it to show that there's been a lot of change and it's helped and hopefully we can get them to to take it over and mm-hmm. and provide it for everyone uh, all the all the children and for me it's so important because i get it I have it I have access to the equipment so I want everyone to have access and and I'm in a very privileged position when professional cyclist who races for a team team Nova Nordisk everyone's type one diabetic uh so I want to use the platform that no. I have at, at the moment to to benefit others and and I get a lot of inspiration from from the from the youngsters as well so I mean it's a it's a two-way street they hit, like I can help them with this the opportunity that I have and and that means the world to me you know what I mean if if that's all i at the end i i finish professional cycling i know of just a sec
1: oh hello siri (laughs) Siri siri's turned on
3: i don't know what's (laughs) happening new phone and all that um so if i can get i do a lot of like sort of i find the word motivational speaking difficult because i don't feel myself motivational um but that's not something that I would label myself with that's something someone else can label me with but I do a lot of talks and you speak to a lot of kids a lot of adults who have type 1 diabetes but most of all like parents whose children have type 1 diabetes and you realise that you give a lot of comfort from from what you do and, and that means the world to me that's so humbling to know that me just sharing a story and increasing... A child's like sort of testing level to one more a day putting a smile on someone's face unbelievable you've positively affected someone's life so i go to a meet a meet and i just talk like like we're talking now and don't really feel i'm doing anything but you've, you've changed someone's life and that yeah. is so special to know that even if it's a smile they've come to that and that that's such a positive outlook that a smile one more test a day you've changed someone's life and that's
1: unbelievable so it's so a funny enough, that's on motivation i think uh, there's often my own view is it's often a uh, not a misconception but motivation isn't always about speaking it's about actions so yeah, obviously yeah. it's your actions that are probably inspiring just as much as much as words that perhaps people don't see and uh funny enough again just on a and we talked at the beginning there about the introduction i had for the for inky johnson and i always try and find uh, something that encapsulates and funnily enough i nearly uh, included uh, a, a speech that i don't know whether whether listeners have heard from uh it's a former former Army guy, and he was giving a a speech at a college, and he talked about changing the world. And he was in the army, and he just talks about the ripple effect of you just change one person's life or two, and they'll change four, and they'll change six. So just the same, same, same philosophy of when you talk about impacting kids uh, and changing their lives, and that ability to be able to monitor that—it's just that must be for 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 parents, let alone the impact it has on the kid, the parents who you know obviously must worry endlessly about the children at the best of times let alone when when they're struggling with this to have that that ability and that that comfort level of that monitor must just be
3: yeah it's unbelievable I mean that's that's what I like I mean at the age of now 28 I can sit in in the camp and be like help parents knowing that I've been through that I mean I'm not a parent myself but I mean then I can relate to the kids Mm. because I have the type 1 diabetes so like it it's great to be able to a parent to sit down and ask me a question and, and time is something so valuable that I'd love to give as much as I can to people because that's all they want they want reassurance yeah. and it's that ripple effect I mean a lot of the time I feel that everything is so global scale or so huge, like changing the world can be something so simple. Okay. it's not having to be do something that affects hundred. Like, you know the hundred million people it, it for me change your little part of the world and then they change their part of the world if you change one person's world like the ripple effect you're going to change little parts and, and my world i try to make as big as possible to help as many people as possible but even changing that one person yeah. well then it is the start of changing world it's something so minute that then creates a as you say a ripple effect
1: so what i'm gonna what i'm gonna do at the end of the podcast if you listen to the out i'll play the uh the speech that I hear and it very much resonates with exactly what you said there. Just one last question on the Manx side of that. You, you mentioned you're working. We are working on our man. Who are you working with on our man in regard to that project? And you say we. So monitors for kids. Yeah.
3: So monitors for kids. It's all. It's uh, that's the actual
1: foundation. Yeah. So so uh,
3: uh, the Manx Diabetic Group is okay, is so is is right, the, okay. the Manx charity, but it's also it's run solely by the parents. Okay. So um, although it's connected with the Manx Diabetic Group, it's all sort of. Outreach from the from the parents whose kids are gonna benefit from from it. So it's all it's very very just it's unsupported essentially. Yeah. Uh, so anything that can be supported in it is, is fantastic because all the work is done by by the parents and the little work I do is <laughs> showing up at an event and helping out. You know, putting my face to it is something that I can do to help and try to help. I mean, we've we've had a few. A few balls now two balls we did last year and and this year and they've both been a success so as long as we can continue towards our target and reach our target we're not too far away so
1: yeah it's looking good good so so then moving on in your career triathlon you're doing triathlons uh talk about that opportunity where the cycling came about you mentioned you obviously earlier you'd had the connection with the team you they were on your on your jersey and how that evolved then into really i suppose where you're at now in your in your career
3: so in i had this really i was looking on on website and i found this awesome photo of me in world championships in london and it was probably a year after i competed i was like, oh, i like that so um i'd seen the team in, in its uh, form in in some of the races on tv and and i knew of the team and knew of the team well but at that point i was always in involved in cycling i, I watched cycling i'd never ridden a race i'd never i, but I obviously rode through triathlon um I just posted a photo of me and just put um, hashtag changing diabetes and racing with diabetes and, you know, those those sort of, uh, those those uh, hashtags. And then the team re- reached out to me and said, oh, you know, I mean, a couple of the, the athletes at the time, the elite athletes, uh, reached out to me and said, you know, we, we, we're looking for always athletes with type 1 diabetes. And at that point, um, it was 2014, um, I reached out to the team, we had a, a Skype conversation and it was kind of like it went went pretty cool. I mean, I was looking just to, to, to connect with them and see what, what what I could do, if I could be involved. I was a triathlete, saw they had an elite team and the triathlete side of stuff is what they brand the elite team as. So I was like, oh, well, maybe I, I could I could join and be a representative in the UK. Uh, they uh, asked me for details, had a Skype conversation. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, we'd love it. Uh, maybe a week later, they called me back and said, listen, uh, we've seen your race CV. We want to maybe put you in the development program or at least give you a trial. It's like, at that point, I was going through a lot of situations like, okay, uh, the development team is based in Atlanta, Georgia, in the USA. Um, so I asked the first question was, obviously, can I complete my degree? I had one year left. Oh, and, um, okay. So uh, they were like, well, we'd have to be based in America. So I made a decision at that point that I would accept the triathlete role, but I had to postpone or say no to the, the development role. Um which if I knew that now, it probably would be a different question, you know, a different answer at least. But um, I then got through that year. Obviously, that's when I raced in Bala with the team kit on. Uh, And then uh, in sort of 2015, as my degree came to an end, I graduated, uh, I raced in, in Geneva, the European Championships. I then went to the Island Games in Jersey for the Isle of Man as a triathlete. I was then looking at like, where do I go from here? I want to go to Commonwealth Games. I need to put more time, more resource, but also need money to pay for that. And if I got a job, then I wouldn't be able to train the volume I needed. And it was kind of like, where do I go? I'm up in Newcastle living. My degree is at Northumbria. I'm kind of like in, in two boats, really. I'm kind of like, what do I, I need to do? And and uh, I was offered a graduate scheme with uh, one of the biggest quantity-saving firms in the UK uh, that I, I was running out of time to accept, <laughs> which I did accept based on like looking to take it you know but i i at this time i was out in atlanta with the team at one of their talent id camps which is how they develop into it's like a a week long where you'll just learn about your diabetes people from all over the world are there. uh, kids who want to be on the development team Uh, i came along as as a triathlete elite member i thought i was there to help out really but i mean Mm. now i know it's a trial um they, they loved it. They enjoyed like I loved the situation, loved the atmosphere, loved what I got from that. And um, then I came back from that, uh, had some good conversations, but wasn't really more aware. Started my first job in the graduate scheme, and then a week later I was offered a job as a development cyclist, meaning I'd have to, to move to America, which was came as quite a surprise really to me but also to my family because you know my parents have put me through four years of university and then all of a sudden I'm telling them uh, I'm quitting my job after a month and moving out to America to live there but nothing but support I mean my parents my my parents as we discussed earlier how were they supportive and that of sort of they were but it's a decision I had to make and it's a decision decision my dad was like well this is but he's more playing devil's advocate than anything else he wasn't trying to put me off the situation so I remember emailing the coach the Daniel Holt the, the coach of the development team and he said um uh, um, gave me the offer basically and I remember replying to the email after speaking to my dad who hadn't been negative but it was it was kind of more He's like of giving here. me a balanced view which I really really like respect and really uh, like fantastic support you know and I, I emailed him back and, and co-copied dad in and said listen I, um, I'd love to take the offer uh, let's do this and, and my dad responded with uh, okay right we're fully on board let's make this happen and that was like the best email I've ever received you know from my dad mm-hmm. just to say that we've got your back were there yeah, for you yeah, yeah. so I mean I think I then had to then go and it didn't and, say PSUs for years. You yeah, so. yeah probably <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, that's the, bit, the bit I didn't read yeah, yeah. Uh, but then I mean within a week I'd handed him a notice um, yeah. two days later it was the office was closing for Christmas so I was leaving on Friday but dad came over took all the stuff back on the boat and uh, yeah. you know 1st of January 2016 I started yeah. riding full time I've yeah. no experience at all i uh, raced 10k in October I was kind of like now, now you're a cyclist, first of, as I say, 1st of January 2016. I've never ridden a bike race. I've never l- ridden longer than three hours, and right. now I'm going to be full-time athlete. I mean, up, up at this stage, it wasn't professional, but I was uh, full-time looking at a training camp in, in January. So, right. yeah, something to look forward to.
1: And how uh, di- was the thought process at that stage going, what the hell have I got myself into? Or it's, here's a challenge, There was here's a, an opportunity. There was a bit of that, but... I want to be a professional cyclist. I want, like, when I went,
3: I was like to my dad, I'm going to be a professional cyclist. Mm-hmm. Like, there was mm-hmm. no there was no two bones about it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's a different route into professional cycling. But, I mean, I had the background in endurance sports. I mean, if I wasn't a professional cyclist, it wouldn't be for the want to try, you know. So, I was like, I've got this one opportunity. There's one place to get professional contract from here, and this is through the team and mm-hmm. to move forward through that. And, honestly, it's just, I again a competitive edge i strive to be the best and and i took a lot of hits in the first year you know i took a lot of learning really fast i went my first race i think was end of april 2016 after i moved to america um so that was my first race i mean and then my second race that first race i think it was called the blue goose race i can't remember what state it was in maybe somewhere like uh i want to say kentucky but it's, yeah. It doesn't matter. But, it's, but that was my first race. So we're talking end of April 2016. I then raced a UCI stage race as my second race. That's I true. mean, yeah, yeah. So I raced uh, Joe Martin stage race, first race uphill time trial. Second stage was, uh, I can't remember, but I went through a range of emotions. I mean, there were four stages in total. I got to the third and, and DNF. And I was like, is this what cycling's about? But I mean, I'm racing a professional road race as my second ever race. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um In terms of perspective, I went from racing my first race ever to racing Milan Sanremo in less than two years. So it's unbelievable. And that's just the desire I have. I want to, I go all in, you know, I'm not messing around. I I
2: moved through the system pretty quickly. And how how did you find that transition from kind of uprooting yourself in the UK straight over to America and being? put in this development like how did you find that person personally in that side of it i mean like i find myself changed.
3: as a massive people person i love to chat
2: so i would never have an issue with like sitting by on
3: someone on a plane and just talking about anything like mm. i mean i love that but i got to america and i was kind of like not know. i didn't know mm. anything like i'd always watch cycling, and always watched the biggest race always watch the tour de france the monuments yeah everything i knew what cycle was but honestly until you ride a bike in a race you have no yeah. idea and I spent the first probably year getting my head kicked in, realizing what am I doing, but gaining experience without realizing you're gaining experience. I raced, I don't know, probably 80 race days over that first year, but all like local crits, uh, road races in America, traveling through most states, racing, um, and just enjoying the experience. Still with a desire to, obviously the main goal was to turn professional, but Still at this point, although I wanted to do it, didn't know what I needed to do, at what stage was it not going to be possible, what stage was it going to be possible, when do you pick up those points, but I mean, I raced through that first year, picked up a lot of pointers, came to the end of the year, and I felt strong, you know, I'd, I'd switched over, I mean, I carried a lot of upper body from triathlon, yeah. but I my body was adapting, um I was still very far behind on skills, like skills you learn as a four, five, six-year-old that I, I had because I'd done a bit of cycling around like with dot and and those stuff, but I was never a world beater, never going to like, I was always in the top five, six, but never really like super, super out, um, like at the top, but always there or thereabouts. So um, just learned that first year was such a learning curve. I don't think I've learned more than in that first six months
1: as a cyclist. We we I know we were chatting recently about about that and i i still find it i think it gets a little lost or easily lost because i, I cycle from a young age and the skills of just riding in bunches mm-hmm. uh knowing what's going on in the race i kind of not that i know a lot but it's a lot of it's in built and i see lads around my age now getting into the sport and trying to adapt i appreciate i'm a bit older but trying to adapt and learn these things and they're ingrained in me so suddenly t- for you to go into a sport where you've done some racing but time trial and for those that don't know is a lot different from road racing yeah you throw people into a road race it's there's just an unbelievable amount of thing and i imagine you still learn to this day as as everyone learns but that learning curve you're, you're just you're so far behind it when you step on, on yeah on that i first mean bike racing skills two years two years before doing the Milan yeah. race, which, <laughs> which for those that don't know is one of the biggest one day races well probably is the biggest one day race in the world that Cav, Cav won a number of years ago. Two thousand nine, I think. Yeah, yeah. and uh, two hundred and sixty k. Three hundred. Three hundred. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Neutralised yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and cleared yeah. two nine three, I believe, yeah, without yeah, yeah. neutral. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, to step into, step into that arena, uh, and and learn, and I have to learn that at such a, and learning it in such a, I suppose a stressful environment as well, because again, re- racing, you are not you know you're not in that environment. you're not relaxed because you're in something that's new to you as well yeah, so yeah. you're trying to pick all this up while getting your head kicked in uh and trying to take stuff trying to take stuff out of it trying to stay motivated trying to believe it's the right thing to do
3: yeah i mean when you say it like that it sounds like a lot but i mean you take it so simple when when you do it you know and, and i'm still learning every day in, in in the group and i i get better um there's stuff I see people do, which is unbelievable, like you're like, you're, like racing like Cav Pizza Gan, who can do everything on a bike, you know, and it's unbelievable that you see these guys, but these are all one in a million people, you know, and um racing at the top level is special. Um and I I I do find myself on the outside of the peloton on early in early stages I was kinda of, like you override and using what came naturally and that was to push hard. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time it almost felt like I was doing a solo time trial on the side of the bunch and that that would take that with a pinch of salt but it felt like my default was to just ride as hard as I could for as long as I could which has probably helped me along a lot more than anything else has but now I know how to finesse a little bit more and get into the bunch and and work out and you have to it takes a long time to work out how a bunch moves and and how it how it adapts it's almost like a cyclical motion i want for a better phrase and it's cycling but it's like a washing machine effect and you're just rotating constantly rotating and if you're not moving forward you're moving backwards so you've got to kind of like adapt and realize what's going on and and then you i've watched like i say cycling my whole life and you don't really understand what's happening in there until it happens and you're touching people at 70k an hour sometimes and it's unbelievably close and and you're going through all this you got to it's a lot more physical contact than people actually realize. Mm -hmm. And and if you can watch some, some shots from inside the Peloton, it's quite interesting actually, but yeah, the bike um, cams, yeah, the bike cams, it's changed like the way you can view the sport, but it's, it's a lot of respect. You have to, you have to know what's going to happen, know what your situation is. Like I'm not a sprinter. So it's very rarely that I'm at the front with a hundred meters to go. Um, and that's not my place. Um, but, uh, I do what I can. And I mean, I'm learning, adapting. I mean, over these I've just finished my second year as professional cyclist and it's only my third or nearly come to the end of four years uh, as a cyclist so it's unbelievable when i look back what's happened what i've done how i've evolved in such a short space of time that i can only take that forward and it gives me more desire to see what another year will give yeah.
1: me i suppose that comes back to again the motivation people see in in what you're doing there and you know showing that with type 1 diabetes that you can achieve many many things and yeah, yeah. very rapidly as well
3: I mean I, I work with a, a, a local a local guy called Phil Quirky he does a lot of mind based yeah. stuff and it's really good because he gave me this uh, scenario and it's based on motivation is so fluctuating you know it's like anything but commitment is the one thing that keeps you going so in the morning my commitment is to type 1 diabetes and to changing my world and to riding my bike and to do all that together is one so I'm committed to that whereas motivation comes and goes a little bit um, it does fluctuate. Uh, I feel that my motivation and commitment are at the same level, so I feel pretty motivated most days because I'm doing what I love that I would do as a hobby, but I'm doing it as a job. So yeah, it's yeah. like I still have to pinch myself sometimes, but like that commitment is, I, I, I doesn't waver. You know, it's yeah. it's there.
1: So so oh eight you go. You've been racing in the states. 07, 08 Would you consider that? Um, I appreciate you're full time, but I'm full time pro cyclist. That's when it. It really kicked
3: in so when when I joined the the professional team yeah. I stagiared which is a trainee role in 2017 17. yeah so mid 2017 I'd come back here there nationals were on the Isle of Man um mm-hmm. I was not telling anyone I'd been asked to go up to this pro team I was waiting really but uh I raced nationals here time child road race and then uh, my first professional race was going to be back in the states. so I raced tour of Utah as my first professional race there that, I guess not fully professional but first professional races Stagia and Utah Colorado Classic you know so it's two big races and I survived so like, more than survived you know I held my own and uh, I felt pretty good at that stage I kind of like had didn't have a confirmed contract but you know like as people in the past who used to share, tend to be good enough for the pro team so that's where they put them on but I want to show that I want to prove that I don't want to go off what's happened to other people I go off and make my own sort of way so where uh, Raced really well, did really well, uh, offered a professional contract after that, and then raced again in China twice after after that. And right. then that was the finish of my second season. So that was at uh, the end of 18? T- end of 17. 17, so, yeah, sorry,
1: yeah. right, okay. So then, yeah, so 18, milan San Remo. Yeah. Obviously a big, uh, big badge of honour to ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How was Huge. that? When did you get told about that?
3: So I went into my first training camp with the professional team. It was sort of at the end of the end of set and end of 17. Yeah. So coming into 18, um, need to really establish myself. You know, I'm, I'm not looking for a free ride. I'm not here for a free ride. I'm here to, to ruffle some feathers and, and to push on and do what's good for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously be a team player, but, uh, I'm need to learn, want to learn, willing to do everything. Looked at the race schedule, race schedule looking good, but mine was probably a bit lacking in some of the days that I, I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. um, i was probably not racing until april which mi- missed out on the early early stages dug in deep um had a good winter training camp then we went out in january back to to where we're based in calpe and uh in in january and, and was pushing on really well you know and uh then i was um given the chance to to race it the uh what was the abu dhabi uh mm-hmm. race is now uae uh but I, so I, I was then given my first race as World Tour. So we've come forward from April to, to February, uh, and then I get in the breakaway in, in my first ever World Tour race, my first ever professional race. Uh, so I had so much confidence, you know, and then uh, we're coming into March, and then I wasn't really, again, on the roster much. Uh, one of the guys pulled out from La Ciana, which is uh, like our building race to Milan San Remo. Um, I went there, uh, DNF'd with probably... I don't know, three quarters of the field, wet, horrible day, miserable, just climbing. You know, I did did all right now. I was, suffered through, got through most of the race, but just, uh, it was lapped, so they just pulled most of the race. So only, like, it's, it happens. Uh, and then, uh, on my way home, I uh, get this email, says, Sam, uh, boss says, Sam, you come to Milan San Remo. So, I mean, I was straight on the phone to my parents saying, I've just been uh, told I'm going to Milan San Remo. I'm like, oh my God, like, <laughs> don't, don't really know what's going on. Don't really know if it's someone pulling my leg, but... Uh, next week I'm flying out to uh, Milan to, to race uh, a monument you know yeah, it's my yeah, third yeah. race as a professional athlete and uh, I'm racing Milan San think that's nuts yeah
1: that's yeah, absolutely yeah. crazy and what was that experience like
3: absolutely unbelievable it was the worst day imagine the Isle of Man in the winter it's like <laughs> pouring down with rain uh we're so on that your- it snowed up on the hills no that was that I think that was a few, a few years, years before, before but uh it was pouring down, and, mm-hmm. and and those who aren't familiar with Milan San Remo, it's it, as we said before, it's three hundred kilometres, including neutralised. And uh, but the first seven eight k, which is neutralised out of out of Milan San Remo, uh, out of Milan, sorry, is almost like being on Douglas Prom with the trap with the tram tracks, mm-hmm. but in every direction. So it's wet, it's cobbles, it's slippy. There's four or five crashes, and I'm like, not panicking, but I'm kind of like yeah, yeah. realizing the situation I'm in. I'm racing racing Milan San Remo. In my first season as a pro, in my second month as a professional cyclist, in my third race as a professional, and I'm pinching myself. I I could have been on a beach in the Bahamas. You know, I was
1: quantity surveillance yeah. there in, in, <laughs> in <laughs> exact facts.
3: I was ready for this. Yeah, I, right. It's like it. No matter what that day threw at me, I was I was gonna give absolutely everything. And um, yeah, so uh, that was kind of. It was just unbelievable. It was. you cramped towards the end. No, oh, no. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was just a very long day. Yeah, it was. I, it was. Uh, I think I, I forget how long that day was, but it was a bit slow, you know. Um, so we like seven, like, seven, yeah, like seven hour race. Yeah, it was eight eight hour race, I think, yeah. or closer to the eight, and uh, yeah. it was. Um, it's you go through a range of emotions, you know. It's actually not the distance. I mean, it's just it doesn't feel very long. I've been in races that are 160 K that feel longer. Yeah. Um, but the problem is it's relatively, it builds like a, like a, a crescendo, you know, you go through the Takino pass, but, um, that's a, a climb in the middle. And then you come onto the, onto the coast and up towards, uh, the French border. And, uh, you kind of like realize what you're in. And then at the end, they've got the Trey Capi, which is the three peaks. I, I think it translates roughly to, but, um, then that's where the race kicks off so you've raced 240k 250k and this is where the race is going to kick off and then that's just where it becomes an absolute yeah, like yeah. A slinging match you yeah. know and, and I got through I mean yeah. I remember it, it, it well and it's still now brings like it's a lot of emotion back you know focused that when you they were there for the second the, the year after that uh, they okay. came to to watch yeah. the next yeah. time yeah so that that is one of my biggest memories as a professional athlete is having your parents at the finish of mindset yeah, yeah. rainbow it's unbelievable you know um they don't often say they're proud well my mum would my dad's you know he's like face of stone but uh <laughs> he uh yeah no you could see it on his face that he realized what was
1: actually happening on, you know yeah, and yeah. what they realized that they, they talk about it, but those types of races, like yeah, yeah, an yeah. opera of just that build. And yeah, build yeah, and yeah build exactly. To, that's to, to a finale, to a tea, yeah. yeah, when
3: you're in it, it's, it feels a lot. The music more, yeah, around, yeah, yeah. yeah, the music just yeah, yeah. It builds. It it just all of a sudden kicks off, and that's yeah. It just. And how
1: do you find fueling? Again, obviously, a lot different going into the, into long endurance cycling. F- fueling wise, is that obviously another thing I guess again I think people perhaps don't realise is educating yourself around yeah so do you mean in be... terms of like diabetes well or both, everything, both. Don't I? Well, yeah I mean the I, thing is, I know if I had to do it I have got diabetes and I rocked up it, my head would explode thinking about just I have to fuel myself <laughs> and I haven't got tag on time yeah yeah me, so. of
3: course I mean for me like fueling is unbelievable I absolutely love food and that's probably why I'm, I enjoy being a professional cyclist <laughs> but uh, like if you put me and A another cyclist on a bike you know I mean like for the people listening someone like Chris Froome I'd just say anybody um if we both sit on the bike we're both going to need to fuel at some point i use diabetes as as a regime to allow me to know how my body is as we've discussed as well so so for me it's just just fuel just continually fuel you know if i'm doing the right things in terms of continuously fuel my, my diabetes tends to line up and that's just the way it is if it's good in the morning if it's good i've got everything lined up there's no less peaks you keep it a flat line as best as possible uh it's not always perfect but um
1: you there's just, a play on your mind when you're racing
3: yeah a little bit you know especially if you come out of your target area you know if you come mm-hmm. out if you're going a little bit higher a little bit low then it starts to become more you know once you've start got a grain of sanded builds and builds and builds when it when it's like that then it's a bit difficult but when it's doing exactly what you want it to do then yeah. it becomes it's not a problem and it's not a problem anyway but when it's in target you feel a lot better you're just eating you're constantly eating yeah. I mean it's when you're doing like Marlon San but also less races you just need to keep fueling throughout the day especially when Marlon and is a one day race but if you've got a seven day race you are fueling for the next day you're fueling for the next three days or whatever so constantly fueling making sure everything's right and it's just another way to, to check and it's just use it as another tool like fitness it, just use my, my Dexcom my blood sugar level as, a, as another mm-hmm. instrument to allow like heart rate you know if your heart's like you know if, you, if you've got a cold or something your heart rate might be a bit higher a bit lower and it's i just use it similar to that it's just another tool to allow me to it's,
1: it's interesting actually, because part of the things we want to talk with other people about as well is, is the mind on, on and psychology in racing so it must be so because sport at any level everyone has their battles internally in their head whether they haven't got any form whether their legs aren't feeling right and it. Have I fueled enough? And just to add another layer of that is—is is my insulin at that where it should be? It's just another thing that can chip away at that that motivation and not motivation, but that that mindset. That
3: yeah, I mean, I like to think I'm pretty stern, you know, pretty like stubborn, focused, <laughs> stubborn, stubborn, <laughs> stubborn, focused. Uh, you know, I don't like to. I like to be in control of what yeah, I can yeah, be yeah. in control of, and if it's outside of my control it's out of my business, you know, it's like, if I can't control it, then yeah, yeah. it's nothing to do with me, yeah. if like, it's like someone, people's opinions, all that sort of stuff, I mean, if,
1: yeah, sorry, so, so you talk about that, you see, you see, I see that more and more, The and I know, uh, Sky and, uh, uh British Cycling, yeah, sorry, yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah. okay, so. uh yeah, 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 so, uh, they talk about just controlling what you can control. Yes. Is that something you've learned yourself, or again within that team environment, is that something they educate you on as well?
3: I mean, like when you're in a team environment, you do pick up things from other people. But I, as I said before, I've worked worked closely with a, a couple of people from over here, uh, Phil Quirk yeah, is yeah. one of them. Uh, I, I work with him, and 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 he taught me this scenario. It's almost like if you imagine a circle, is your control. If if there's something that's bugging you, but it's outside of your control can you bring it Influ- into your control yeah. can you influence it if you can influence it you have to ask a question that question would then give you the is it in your control do you bring it into your control or do you just say it's now not in my control and push mm-hmm. it away so um you either take ownership and make something within your circle of control or you just pass it off so mm-hmm. so maybe if you don't ask the question it would just chip 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 whereas if you ask the question and the answer is oh, no, you don't need to worry about that. Okay, it's not my problem. But if it then go, oh, well, you could do this, then it becomes your problem. You sort it out, and then that's mm-hmm. just the way I look at it, yeah. and that's the way it works for me. And and there are things, if you allow stress to build up and things, different things to, to bother you, it can be a big burden, you know, we mm-hmm. a lot of things. As soon as one thing starts happening, then it incurs more, you know, it kind of becomes then a heavier, heavier, heavier. Whereas I try to... to not allow that to happen and sometimes with the diabetes side of stuff sometimes it can be like today's just not working for me but if you realise that it's one day it's not a month of two months a year of bad yeah. and whatever um, then it's a lot better you know so if my control might something might have happened I might have travelled long haul or come home and my diabetes just isn't playing ball I just make sure that you're doing the right yeah. things trust the process as they say you know if you're doing what you know is right and you're not getting the right answer doesn't mean what you're doing is wrong Mm. just means that something is else is affecting it that that happens so if i know i'm doing the right training not feeling great i will feel better when it all clicks you know Mm. i mean you just need to have those questions with your coach with your management with the team with your friend you know anyone who can support you
1: so yeah so i've uh I went on a on a short seminar with Phils a little while ago, yeah, yeah. and uh, really good. And I know he certainly I'd recommend people looking looking him up. I know he's on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I know people have been on his courses, and pers- just on a self improvement level is yes. you know it's good. Let alone in sport. Uh, so yeah, certainly as a, as a local guy who <coughs> works around the globe now uh, and work with top athletes, but it's not really about even athletes. Is it? It's just, no, just everything. Yeah, yeah. 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 So def- definitely have a look up for Phil Quirk. Uh, so then. Over the last eighteen months, then how's that? How's the cycling developed? How's that endurance? How's the? Well, I mean, how's it all going? It's crazy as we've just discussed the whole sort of scenario that I'm in.
3: But um, okay, my route to professional cycling is completely different to everybody else's. But I come with a background that is a good background, yeah, you know, I a good sure. a good endurance base, a good a good a good background, and I'm competing at the top level. I'm not like out the back i'm not like out of the way you know not not finishing i'm in the breakaway in world tour races i'm holding my own i'm doing um what i can when i can and, and this year um i supported uh, charles Planet a teammate of mine he won uh, the intermediate sprint jersey in tour poland which is world tour so our first world tour jersey mm-hmm. i was involved in that um going back a little bit before that i mean my first year as a professional i think i raced four world tour races um, I raced Commonwealth Games to the Isle of Man in the Gold Coast um, I've done a lot yeah. you know when, you, when I think about two years in professional cycle I've raced two Milan San Ramos Commonwealth Games I think in total I've raced five world tour races this year including like Tour of California Tour of Poland Milan, Milan San Remo UAE Tour so there's there's a lot of world tour and big races that I'm racing and I feel the progression has being steady and upwards you know I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm everyone says there'll be a plateau but for me I, i'm a 15 16 17 year old kid who's just started the sport so why mm. does that have to to change now i mean i i've not been in the sport long okay i might be a bit older but why does that mean that i'm past that rate mm. rate of progression you know i'm going to hopefully continue that rate of progression and push on and i want I, i'm not going to lie i want to win races um we don't Get on the podium as much as we'd like to, as much as we probably deserve to. But I mean, cycling is a lot of luck as well. Mm. Um, I wore my first uh, jersey uh, in the K- uh, KOM uh, competition in King of the Mountains, yeah, yeah, King, yeah, King of the Mountains. Sorry for yeah. the average yeah, non-cyclist. <laughs> um, so in race tour of California, came back to straight to tour of Estonia. Um, didn't have a great first day it was a, a technical time trial and obviously we discussed my technical ability and it's not very good so uh the next day pouring down rain typical manx day i loved it and so right i'm going I in the breakaway yeah got in the breakaway um picked up second place in the second kom and i didn't even realize it was a kom like it, it thought it was flat but they they were awarding the last two sprints of the day with a kom and and one guy uh out, sprint, out sprinting me I was coming back on him you know and I can't, took second but really should have taken first and, and that's just maybe a bit of naive or just like unaware I just wasn't quite sure where the line was it wasn't should quite at the top to of the hill yeah right. so uh, came second I was like well you know what I can I can take a jersey here I can if I'm if if I i if first in the next one he's not second so um, I waited for the group to get within 20 seconds and there's still maybe 40k so I knew they weren't ready to catch us and when the group was in 20 seconds I just took off you know I went back to time trialling and full yeah. gas, uh, 8K solo, uh, took the took the um, the first points. points from that and then uh, wore the jersey into the second day and uh, it was just a bit of miscommunication. The next day meant that I lost the jersey based on overall GC, which yeah. is a bit frustrating, but it's, it's a learning curve and it's something that people may not realise, but a lot of teamwork goes in, into cycling and we had two guys in the top 10 overall, uh, me just outside, so we had a lot of... Lot to uh, juggle. a lot, of, to, lot to really juggle and and that risk we put on mainly to try and finish more in stage position mm. uh, and uh, then the GC position as well so I mean I lost the jersey based on I had equal points but lost it on mm-hmm. um, overall but I mean those things happen and I'm hoping that I'll get that opportunity at some point later down the line uh, but I'm just happy with the season you know I mean mm. I couldn't say it's, it's pretty much been a perfect season I, I finished in um, the Tour of Taiyu Lake, two point one in China. Um, so again, two point one is the great. Uh, okay, yeah, right, yeah. It's, yeah it's it's like a it's pretty high. It's yeah, yeah. high middle rank race in, yeah. in it's uh, a good race. Um, yeah. Some good European teams uh, went up there. Um, finished twentieth in the time trial in the prologue, which again, for those people, it's, a, it's a small time trial to
1: start the race. Uh, <laughs> you don't ever jump off the time trial. No, I need no, to go for ten K run now. Like, yeah. <laughs> Maybe, you know, I,
3: I went for a run once in off-season and oh. never again, yeah, right. so uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I yeah. think I want to do what I used to do and it's just not possible, yeah, um, yeah, so yeah. yeah, so I went to of to Lake and, and um, managed to get myself in the breakaway in the second-to-last stage, it's seven or eight stages, I forget, um, but uh, anyway, come away with top 20, 16th overall, uh, mm-hmm. less than a second from top 15, less than two seconds I believe from the top 12, so um, I might be slightly wrong on that, but you get the picture anyway. So more UCI points and more ra- a better ranking. Uh, so if you thought like if I was told two years ago I would finish top sixteen in a in a highly classified UCI race, yeah. I would be over the moon yeah, to yeah. have done that. To race, you know, twice a monument. Yeah. Uh, to race Commonwealth Games for my the Isle of Man. You know, the biggest w- way we can represent our and uh, I take you, I more than snatch your hand off, you know. So
1: I think uh, I I've been trying to think of kind of uh, sort of examples of comparing that how quick that movement is from because you think then you know if you're a good athlete a runner today and in two years you're representing GB in the you know in a marathon in the Olympics for example it's not even a comparison because I don't think anyway because. I don't think and there's no respect to runners it's not super technical to go running you know you run as hard as you can but so if you should compare yourself to you know, just an example where it might be an f1 drive and go one day you're doing diving around fast and then two years later you're in a f1 There's so much more going on yeah, yeah, yeah. outside of your own skill ability and, and fitness there's then all these other factors which I just uh, unless you've you know I've raced a bike and it's stressful enough racing around the local roads with what's going on <laughs> yes. you then throw yourself in with a load of professionals Who've got 15 years in their legs and all that knowledge and information? Uh, I just, yeah, I can't speak highly of how hard that must be. And they're probably unnoticed by so, so many people.
3: Yeah, I mean, well, thank you, first of all. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but it, it's difficult, but I'm not looking for praise, you know? I'm not no, looking. No. And, and, and that's not. That's not. Yeah. It's not about praise, <laughs> it's, it's more about just yeah, that appreciation. Yeah, of course, of, but maybe you, what, you what, don't. What see I mean it is, I'm not it doesn't influence me if people don't really understand you no. know but I mean yeah it is it's a big step and and uh, I don't do it because I want other people to think oh wow but I mean it is wow yeah, you know yeah, to me yeah, yeah. I'm like Good wow right. every every day you know yeah. it's like and I, I'm happy with that you know if, if if I make no one other than myself proud then great but yeah. I mean I feel that I've done such a sh- a lot in such a short amount of time that that gives me so much positivity to see what more i could do in another year Mm. and that's what i want to do i want to win bike races so uh yeah to basically watch this space that's where i want to go with it i want to continue to push continue to to change my small part of the world
1: and go go forward with it all the uh the the team itself obviously through this whole process super supportive you're obviously a, a spokesperson for type one that's all part of your role as well yeah yeah that is I talking do, around yeah. the world on that subject
3: yeah I mean I've done uh, a, a European uh, a year it's a, a European Diabetes Association uh, sort of a talk there at their uh, annual meeting I did in, in Stockholm in 2015 Uh, i get to go to different ones in the uk get to talk to to local i mean i was at a a, a ball a few weeks ago i mean always uh, balls it sounds like i I just wear a dinner suit you know but um i went to one and we raised ten thousand pounds for jdrf which is a juvenile diabetes research Mm. foundation in the uk Uh, so i mean i get to go to these places and, and change people's idea of diabetes now we're all grown up in this society where diabetes is our fault or something happens and it's just Misinterpretations, probably facts that maybe cross over with type 2 diabetes that are then linked to type 1 and people don't really understand. So, I not only help change the idea of people with type 1 and help them, but my idea my goal, and with the team to inspire, educate, and empower everyone around the world affected by diabetes, it's to show that what it actually is, kind of trying to va- define the yeah. diabetes isn't stopping us, isn't slowing us down, we're at the top level of professional cycling but there's more out there than just riding a bike, you know, we. Just, I just want to change someone's life who thinks that diabetes is all this mountain to climb whereas mm. take the rough with the smooth and, and kind of make it just that little bit easier.
1: Yeah, Yeah.
2: okay. Yeah, and you just, you pretty much say in there um, traveling the world doing all different events and your races, how have you found that going from like as soon as you've gone across to in Atlanta and Atlanta, sorry. Atlanta, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So you went across there. And now you're pretty much well. Do you live out a suitcase? Like, what do you? What's your kind of schedule like? Are you all business class? Yeah, <laughs> no business um, class. Though. Is that where you? You know, in and out of suitcase all the time. Would you get much downtime to come home? you know back here yeah so when I was on the development team
3: it's purely based in America Uh, you unpack you have your room you know you have we're based in a a house in America that's really so they can keep an eye on the team they can race the team together they can see where they're at and if they're good enough to move up to the professional team when I turned professional I was based in Europe so I'm based on the Isle of Man people are always asking when are you home you're home I live here but mm-hmm. the issue is bike racing tends to happen on the weekend and most of the time people want to know where you are is on a weekend you know so mm. um, I'm here most of the time train here most of the time away maybe a few times a year on training camp but I do um, spend a lot of time away but more at races so I'd probably say 50% of my time here and there I think I've been haven't properly unpacked the suitcase probably since I started mm. Um there's a lot of living out of suitcases I mean when you go to a bike race that's seven days long you're in a new hotel every night on the on on sort of most of the time uh so it is a lot of living out of a suitcase that sort of stuff and you do kind of get used to it i'm not saying it's easy Mm. and people probably think professional cycling and professional sport is glamorous it's not as glamorous as you think Mm. uh but i don't do it because i want the glamour i do it because i bloody enjoy it and i really want to continue to do that so the traveling can be difficult when you fly to china within 48 hours you're racing. You've just shifted forward nine time zones and your body's all over the place. Mm. But it's just the same for everyone, you know? So um, it happens, you get something to, to learn and, and, and go from there.
1: I'm sure you'd adapt quicker if they flew your business class. Yeah, though. I know. Just I'm, desert, I'm pushing, desert. but yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes the budget doesn't touch yeah, you. Know, private, really. yeah. Yeah, 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 that'd be yeah, nice, yeah, wouldn't yeah, it, imagine? Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. So we're now at the end of 2019. Uh, so 2020, year ahead. What's the plan for Mr. Brand? So, yeah. Um,
3: Signing a new contract for 2020 so that, that that's great news same team so uh looking forward to to pushing the message um uh, i've had a lot of support from Alman sport this year so that, that's that been great i mean um their 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 help is is pushed me on um so i'm grateful for that and going forward as well um i'm looking to be on the podium you know i'm i'm not in cycling to make up a number i don't yeah. want to be i want to be out in front so you know uh World tour races on the podium. Again, maybe at the world tour level, that's asking for a lot. But any any race on the podium, uh, I just want to I want to be involved. I want to, uh, you know, make a name for myself. Show people that I'm not here to just, as I say, make up the numbers. So, uh, uh, watch your space. I'm going to push on, and uh, hopefully, bigger
1: things to come. And if people want to reach out to you, uh, whether it's diabetic related or not. How yeah, do they, how do they do that when well, they find you in the social media world?
3: Yeah, so I try to make myself as accessible as possible. I yeah. mean, I'd really like to if someone has a question or anything. I'm pretty pretty good at responding. Um, uh, Instagram at Samuel Neil Brand uh, mm-hmm. on uh, Twitter. I'm at Sam uh, N Brand, uh, and then my uh, website. I write a blog. Uh, probably not update as much as uh, I'd like to, but at the moment, it's uh, I've got one in the works. So that's uh, www. Samuelbrand.com, so uh, you can reach me there, there's a contact form, come straight to me, so uh, mm-hmm. if anyone wants to reach out, then yeah, feel
1: free, and please do so. And I know, uh, I think it was maybe 18 months ago, I mean, obviously knew you anyway, but reached out, because my sisters had a friend who had diabetes, and they were just looking for a chat, and you immediately, yes, let's set something up, let's have a chat, so I'd sort of certainly implore people, whether it's necessarily diabetic related or not, do reach out. Because uh, you have got an opportunity to get some fee- you know mm. feedback, help, advice, yeah, yeah. commentary, whatever that might just provide a bit of help in day to day life. Yeah, here, some,
3: which... sometimes just that ear to listen. You know, sometimes mm. that's unbelievable, and I know I would I would appreciate that from from other people. So it's nice to be able to offer that back. So yeah, anyone feel free reach out, and uh, you know where to find.
1: Great. So thanks for your time. No, thank yeah, you very much, guys. Yes, thank you very appreciate much. Appreciate it. Really good. Unbelievable. Yeah, so yeah no, no, enjoy it. your training camp <laughs> off to the <laughs> sunnier climbs And the uh, yeah, currently eighteen degrees. So yeah, no, right. about four five to eighteen. Yeah, heart bleeds. Yeah. Well,
2: yeah, we don't care
1: anymore. But, right. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. Thank so, you very much.
2: You. So Matt, if much much to add? Yeah. Um. Just on our side of it. Um. If you wanna like, share, and subscribe this, please on your podcast outlet. So Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you listen it listening to it right now um you can also find us on the facebook which we the have facebook. the fan out of facebook <laughs> yeah know, yeah <laughs> um under the handle of the m word podcast uh, we also have a twitter and that's at manx sport pod uh like to hear from as many people as possible um we've got a story yep. we want to hear it um we're always up for a chat and yep. yeah yeah focus
1: thanks for listening guys thank that's you word out
2: from martin and word out from matt
1: Just before we disappear from your ears, following on from the conversation earlier about the ripple effect, we'll play in full now the University of Texas commencement speech from 2014 by Admiral William H. McRaven, which talks about the ripple effect and how you can affect people's lives. Enjoy listening.
0: So, the university's slogan is What Starts Here Changes the World. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. Tonight there are almost 8,000 students, or there are more than 8,000 students, graduated from UT. So that great paragon of analytical rigor, Ask.com, says that the average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. 10,000 people, that's a lot of folks. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, then in five generations, 125 years, the class of 2014 will have changed the lives of 800 million people. 800 million people. Think about it. Over twice the population of the United States. Go one more generation and you can change the entire population of the world. 8 billion people. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, you're wrong. I saw it happen every day in Iraq and Afghanistan. A young army officer makes a decision to go left instead of right down a road in Baghdad, and the ten soldiers with him are saved from a close-in ambush. In Kandahar province, Afghanistan, a non-commissioned officer from the female engagement team senses that something isn't right and directs the infantry platoon away from a 500-pound IED, saving the lives of a dozen soldiers. But if you think about it, not only were those soldiers saved by the decisions of one person, but their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Well, I'm confident that it will look much, much better. But if you'll humor this old sailor for just a moment, I have a few suggestions that may help you on your way to a better world. And while these lessons were learned during my time in the military, I can assure you that it matters not whether you ever served a day in uniform. It matters not your gender, your ethnic or religious background, your orientation, or your social status. Our struggles in this world are similar, and the lessons to overcome those struggles and to move forward changing ourselves and changing the world around us will apply equally to all. I've been a Navy SEAL for 36 years, but it all began when I left UT for basic SEAL training in Coronado, California. Basic SEAL training is six months of long, torturous runs in the soft sand, midnight swims in the cold water off San Diego, obstacle courses, unending calisthenics, days without sleep, and always being cold, wet, and miserable. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors who seek to find the weak of mind and body and and eliminate them from ever becoming a Navy SEAL. But the training also seeks to find those students who can lead in an environment of constant stress, chaos, failure and hardships. To me basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the ten lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task and another So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. <laughs> during SEAL training the, students, during training, the students are all broken down into boat crews. Each crew is seven students, three on each side of a small rubber boat, and one coxswain to help guide the dinghy. Every day your boat crew forms up on the beach and is instructed to get through the surf zone and paddle several miles down the coast. In the winter, the surf off San Diego can get to be 8 to 10 feet high and it is exceedingly difficult to paddle through the plunging surf unless everyone digs in. Every paddle must be synchronized to the stroke count of the coxswain. Everyone must exert equal effort or the boat will turn against the wave and be unceremoniously dumped back on the beach. For the boat to make it to its destination, everyone must paddle. You can't change the world alone. You will need some help. And to truly get from your starting point to your destination takes friends, colleagues, the goodwill of strangers, and a strong coxswain to guide you. If you want to change the world, find someone to help you paddle. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had, was made up of the little guys, the Munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The Munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good natured fun of the tiny little flippers the munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys, from every corner of the nation and the world, always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart not by the size of their flippers. Several times a week, the instructors would line up the class and do a uniform inspection. It was exceptionally thorough. Your hat had to be perfectly starched, your uniform immaculately pressed, your belt buckle shiny and void of any smudges. But it seemed that no matter how much effort you put into starching your hat or pressing your uniform or polishing your belt buckle, it just wasn't good enough. The instructors would find something wrong. For failing uniform inspection, the student had to run, fully clothed, into the surf zone, then wet from head to toe, roll around on the beach until every part of your body was covered with sand. The effect was known as a sugar cookie. You stayed in the uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. There were many a student who just couldn't accept the fact that all their efforts were in vain, that no matter how hard they tried to get the uniform right, It went unappreciated. Those students didn't make it through training. Those students didn't understand the purpose of the drill. You were never going to succeed. You were never going to have a perfect uniform. The instructors weren't going to allow it. Sometimes, no matter how well you prepare or how well you perform, you still end up as a sugar cookie. It's just the way life is sometimes. If you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward. Every day during training, you were challenged with multiple physical events, long runs, long swims, obstacle courses, hours of calisthenics, something designed to test your mettle. Every event had standards, times you had to meet. If you failed to meet those times, those standards, your name was posted on a list, and at the end of the day, those on the list were invited to a circus. A circus was two hours of additional calisthenics designed to wear you down, to break your spirit, to force you to quit. No one wanted a circus. A circus meant that for that day, you didn't measure up. A circus meant more fatigue, and more fatigue meant that the following day would be more difficult and more circuses were likely. But at some time during SEAL training, everyone, everyone made the circus list. But an interesting, an interesting thing happened to those who were constantly on the list. Over time those students who did two hours of extra calisthenics got stronger and stronger. The pain of the circuses built inner strength and physical resiliency. Life is filled with circuses. You will fail. You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times, it will test you to your very core. But if you, don't, if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circuses. At least twice a week, the trainees were required to run the obstacle course. The obstacle course contained 25 obstacles, including a 10-foot wall, a 30-foot cargo net, a barbed wire crawl, to name a few. But the most challenging obstacle was the slide for life. It had a three-level, 30-foot tower at one end and a one-level tower at the other. In between was a 200-foot-long rope. You had to climb the three-tiered tower, and once at the top, you grabbed the rope, swung underneath the rope, and pulled yourself hand over hand until you got to the other end. The record for the obstacle course had stood for years when my class began in 1977. The record seemed unbeatable until one day a student decided to go down the slide for life head first. Instead of swinging his body underneath the rope and inching his way down, he bravely mounted the top of the rope and thrust himself forward. It was a dangerous move, seemingly foolish and fraught with risk. Failure could mean injury and being dropped from the course. Without hesitation, The student slid down the rope perilously fast. Instead of several minutes, it only took him half that time. And by the end of the course, he had broken the record. If you want to change the world, sometimes you have to slide down the obstacles head first. During the land warfare phase of training, the students are flown out to San Clemente Island, which lies off the coast of San Diego. The waters off San Clemente are a breeding ground for the great white sharks. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, Stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if a shark hungry for a midnight snack darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. As Navy SEALs, one of our jobs is to conduct underwater attacks against enemy shipping. We practice this technique extensively during training. The ship attack mission is where a pair of SEAL divers is dropped off outside an enemy harbor and then swims well over two miles underwater, using nothing but a depth gauge and a compass to get to the target. During the entire swim, even well below the surface, there is some light that comes through it is comforting to know that there is open water above you. But as you approach the ship, which is tied to a pier, the light begins to fade. The steel structure of the ship blocks the moonlight. It blocks the surrounding street lamps. It blocks all ambient light. To be successful in your mission, you have to swim under the ship and find the keel, the center line, and the deepest part of the ship. This is your objective. But the keel is also the darkest part of the ship where you cannot see your hand in front of your face, where the noise from the ship's machinery is deafening, and where it gets to be easily disoriented, and you can fail. Every SEAL knows that under the keel, at that darkest moment of the mission, is a time when you need to be calm, when you must be calm, when you must be composed, when all your tactical skills, your physical power, and your inner strength must be brought to bear. If you want to change the world, you must be your very best in the darkest moments. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the mud flats. The mud flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana, where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us, WE COULD LEAVE THE MUD IF ONLY FIVE MEN WOULD QUIT. ONLY FIVE MEN, JUST FIVE MEN, AND WE COULD GET OUT OF THE OPPRESSIVE COLD. LOOKING AROUND THE MUD FLAT, IT WAS APPARENT THAT SOME STUDENTS WERE ABOUT TO GIVE UP. IT WAS STILL OVER EIGHT HOURS TILL THE SUN CAME UP. EIGHT MORE HOURS OF BONE-CHILLING COLD. THE CHATTERING TEETH AND THE SHIVERING MOANS OF THE trainees WERE SO LOUD, IT WAS HARD TO HEAR ANYTHING. AND THEN ONE VOICE BEGAN TO ECHO THROUGH THE NIGHT one voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything, in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope. The power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell. A brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit, all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to wake up at five o'clock. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. To the class of 2014, you are moments away from graduating, moments away from beginning your journey through life, moments away from starting to change the world for the better. It will not be easy, but you are the class of 2014, the class that can affect the lives of 800 million people in the next century. Start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. Thank you very much, Hook'em Horns.